Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to give you a shocking news here. We are going to finish Genesis 6 tonight, today. We are going to finish it. Uh, you guys thought we were going to finish it for a while, but we're going to actually get through this particular chapter today. <coughs> well, we have been in it a few weeks, so that may have caused some concern. We're going to focus our attention today on the person of Noah. And some introductory things that we need to know about him before we move on into the building of the ark and and the flood, as it will certainly come in the next couple of chapters. (coughs) Excuse me. Genesis 6, let me read verses 8 through 13 for you, and then we will pray together. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Father, our desire this morning is to see clearly the fact that as sin was so rampant in the time of Noah before the flood, so are we living today in a time of great sin and corruption, perversity and violence and lawlessness. So the reasons for looking at these particular verses today are to encourage our hearts to realize that your word is ever true. That when Jesus said, as in the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, we are right smack dab in the middle of that very same situation. And we need your understanding and we need wisdom, but more than anything, we need your grace. Father, give us, Lord, the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. That our minds would be receptive and understanding, that our hearts would be receptive and strong in your faith and in your grace. And we are thankful, Lord, for all that you have given us so that we might know Christ and that we might have life and have it more abundantly in him. This we give you thanks for and praise for in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And amen. Let's consider and remember 
how wicked man had become. From Genesis 3 all the way to where we are here in Genesis chapter 6. Man, with the help of the serpent and his fallen angels, had made the earth a cesspool of immorality and a society of lawlessness and violence. Man was living to fulfill the desires and lusts of the flesh, living for the cult of beauty and sex, living for wealth and possessions and position, power, recognition and honor. Man had forgotten God altogether and was living only for himself and to gratify self. Man was not fulfilling his purpose for being on the earth. In fact, he was working against the very purpose for which God had created him. In essence, man was destroying both the earth and himself as he stood in complete opposition to the Creator and to everything that God stood for and had purpose for his creation. And so God had no choice but to destroy man and to wipe him from the face of the earth. Now, with that in mind, could could there have been a more bleak and black picture painted of the utter depravity of man in his rebellion against God? You know, it's hard to think so. It's hard to think that there was a bleaker picture than what we have seen in these last few chapters. And what about God's promise? God had promised that there would always be a godly line upon the earth, a godly line through whom he could send the Savior to the world. How could God destroy man and the earth and still fulfill his promise? And yet as those dark thunderclouds of God's wrath against human sin are at their most threatening, a small crack appears through those, crowd, through those clouds. And grace shines through. And the promise of a new day dawns. There was one man who would remain true to God up until the day of his death. And that man was Noah. And as we read of him in verse 8, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One man responded to the strivings of God, the Holy Spirit, and he was saved by grace. While the Lord had commanded all the earth to be cleansed of this ungodly pollution, he found one man with whom to begin again. Noah. For where sin abounded, grace much more did abound. And what is most significant about verse 8 and the person of Noah is, is what the verse doesn't say. You see, we are told that Noah found grace, but it doesn't say that he earned grace. It doesn't say that he merited grace. It doesn't say that he worked for grace. It said Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, whether the word grace or favor is used, because I know that many of you may have some modern translations, and and it says favor instead of the word grace. 
But that's okay. You see, whether the word grace or favor is used, to translate the Hebrew word chain, which is the word used there in the Hebrew, it is still, it is still the unmerited favor of God. It is still the unmerited favor of God. The Lord, in other words, giving to us what we don't deserve. That's grace. And what is significant is that this is the first appearance of the idea or concept of grace in the Scriptures. Now, I know that you're saying, it's. hey, wait a minute, it's true that Adam and Eve also found grace when they sinned? Yes. They found grace in the garden when God had taken the, the, the sheep and took their skins. Of course, there was blood to be shed, but the skins he took and he covered them. That was grace. Because God's justice alone, if there was only justice, God's justice alone would have sent them into outer darkness forever. Seth and Enoch and all the others found grace. But here, for the first time, grace is openly and clearly mentioned. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Paul makes this point about grace in Romans chapter 5. And I want to read this, this whole passage, but some of the verses, you know, we're not going to take a whole lot of time in it, but, but some of the verses may sound a little bit uh, wacky, but it's okay. You know, the understanding is there, and I'll point that out to you. In Romans 5, verses 15 through 21, It says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift, which just means that the gift is not like the offense. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, that one being, of course, Adam. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. He's contrasting, of course, Adam and Jesus. Adam, the first Adam, of course, the first man, and Jesus, the second Adam. So he says, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, is abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Let me read that again. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. How many times have we heard the the words free gift? Free gift. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's Adam. One man's disobedience. So by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ, our Lord. Folks, that is the grace of God. That is the grace of God. That is the free gift of God. 
God giving us a gift that none of us deserve. It is a grace that you cannot add anything to. It is a grace that you cannot add anything to because if you could add anything to that which is perfect, it would only cheapen it, it would only weaken it, and it would make it of no effect. It would make it of no value if we could add anything to the grace of God. Can you say that in your life you could add anything to the grace that God has already given you by the things that you've done in your life? Zero. Zilch. Nada. We can't add anything. That's the power of the grace of God. Many years ago, a London traffic jam prevented C.S. Lewis from arriving at a certain religious symposium on time. The panel, comprised of the world's most highly esteemed religious thinkers, began without him. Their first question was this, what is unique about Christianity? Well, a great question for this panel, but the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Jew and the Taoist, as, as they all discussed this, they, they, they could not arrive at a conclusive answer. And in the midst of their debate, C.S. Lewis finally arrives and he bursts into the room and the moderator of this uh, panel says to him, uh, Dr. Lewis, tell us what is unique to Christianity? And he said, that's easy. It's grace. It's easy. If you want to know what, what is unique to Christianity, that no other religion in the world, no other belief system in the world has. It's grace. That's what makes Christianity different from all other religions. Because Christianity is the only religious system, if we can call it that, where a person doesn't have to earn merit to get to heaven. Paul says it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace, by God's undeserved favor, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We see it in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace. Do you notice that phrase? Find grace to help in, our, in time of need? You see, we find grace. We don't earn grace. We don't merit grace. We don't work for grace. And that's why it says in verse 8 of our text, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because you see, outside of Jesus Christ, it is the enemy who condemns. Have you find that found that out to be true? Have you? The enemy is the one who condemns. God doesn't condemn. Jesus doesn't condemn us. As a matter of fact, Romans 8 verse 1 is very clear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because condemnation doesn't come from God to us. But the devil condemns. You've all seen that, uh, you know, 
Sometimes on commercials, you know, some guy's sitting there and there's a little sweet little angel on one shoulder and there's a devil on the other shoulder. And, you know, the, the angel says, well, do this in a nice way. And the devil says, no, 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 no. And eventually, you know, the devil sits on people's shoulders and, and, and especially Christians and says, you know what, who, who made you, you know, prince of the world here? Who, who do you think you are just because you're a Christian? God doesn't love you. Look, at you're, you're a sinner, especially when you fall, especially when you sin, Right. You get the condemnation, that doesn't come from God, that comes from the devil. Outside of Jesus Christ, it is the enemy who condemns, while the Lord pours out His grace upon us. I'm not saying that God isn't going to judge the living and the dead at His appearing. And judge those who have rejected the gospel. He's going to. But remember what we learned about God. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the Lord is the one who pours out his grace upon us, even and especially in and during our time of need. Folks, that is why it is called amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Every Christian should know this, this great hymn and, and sing it with, with, with all of your heart. Because we can't ever take advantage of the grace that God has given for us to be able to say, who saved a wretch. When it comes right down to it, that's all, what, that's all we've ever been. Wretches. But he saved us. We were lost, but he found us. We were blind, but now we see. When Christians sing this song, it's a beautiful thing to hear. But, you know, it's interesting to me. The world likes this tune also. I've heard a lot of secular artists sing Amazing Grace. I even heard one guy sing it when he was half drunk. And I sing it like, well, I don't, all you have to do is sing Amazing Grace and you go to heaven. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. Unfortunately, they're missing out on what the truth of grace is. I don't care how pretty a person sings it. If his heart's not right with God, what good is it to sing it? But if you're a Christian, you, don't, you have a voice that could scare, you know, a, a lion. But you sing Amazing Grace with all your heart. You please the ears of God. Noah may not have known details about the, fir- the future work of Christ, but he, but he looked forward to the Deliverer and he ordered his life accordingly. He was willing to accept God's judgment on his sinful and rebellious nature and place his hope in the Savior. Folks, it's the same today. None of us have a claim on God. We've earned nothing but his just wrath and our eventual destruction. But we can find grace in Jesus. We can find grace in Christ. Think about the life of Noah. As we go on in verse 9, 
and what we read about him. It's interesting, the, 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 the verse begins, these are the generations of Noah. A lot of times when you see the, the, the phrase, these are the generations, you're, you're prepared to see a bunch of lists of names and, and begats, and you know, this person begat this person, and so on and so forth. But notice what it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just Man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. So we get even more of a description of the life and heart of Noah. And then it says, And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, that's the extent of the genealogy, at least at this point. The earth, then he, the Lord uh, brings back to our remembrance the corruption of the earth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now let's get back to the character of Noah, to the person of Noah, to the conduct of Noah. It tells us Noah was a just man. So by hearing that, we realize that Noah had to have been a forgiven man. Noah had to be a forgiven man because he did not make himself just. He is declared just by God. To be declared just by God means that you have been forgiven. So Noah was a forgiven man, but he wasn't just a forgiven man. It tells us that he was also one that was perfect in his generations. And that speaks of his faithfulness to God. He was a faithful man. And then it says that he walked with God, which means he fellowshiped with God. He was forgiven, he was faithful, and he fellowshiped with God. Remember those three words. That needs to be our character. We need to recognize that when we came to Christ, we are forgiven. But being forgiven, we are to be faithful in our lives from that point on. And we're faithful because we have fellowship with God. So the fact that he was a just man speaks volumes of his justification before God. For it tells us that he entered fully into the salvation of God and was given an irrefutable and unquestionable standing before God that belongs only to the justified soul. We've been talking a lot about this on on Wednesday nights as we're going through the book of Romans, especially in chapter 4, dealing with the whole issue of justification by faith alone, by grace alone. So we're tied in to our study in the book of Romans even today. And the fact that Noah was perfect in his generations refers to the power that he received to live a godly life. Listen, we don't live a godly life by our own power. We live a godly life because God has given us a spirit that we might live a life through him. So think about this. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about Noah, I kind of went a little bit ahead of myself, and I talked about Noah uh, in this particular verse, that it says that uh, he was perfect in his generations. And I, and I mentioned that the word translated perfect, tamim in the, in the Hebrew, which means without blemish and sound and healthful and without spot and unimpaired, suggests that Noah's genealogy was not tarnished by the intrusion of the fallen angels that we spoke of in the first four verses of this chapter. He was uncorrupted, in other words, by Satan's attempt to sow a virus among the genetic pool of mankind. I mean, why is God having to destroy the whole earth? And Noah is the only one that has responded in a godly way. 
So God lets us know that he was perfect in his generations, which means that Noah was pure in his genetic profile. He had not, and the line before him had not messed with anything that dealt with sin, and especially in, 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 the, uh, uh, in the horrific type of sin that had taken place upon the earth. Noah was not only forgiven, faithful, and in fellowship with God. Noah was also fruitful. His three sons are named here. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, that, that doesn't look like very much fruit, does it? Three sons. You think back at all of the others who went before Noah and uh, all the way back to Adam. You know, Adam living almost 900 years and, and Methuselah living 969 years. Now all these people had sons and daughters throughout all of this time because, you know, the earth was being populated, of course. And all and you think, well, that, you know, three sons doesn't seem like a lot of fruit. Until you understand it from this perspective. From those three sons, every man, by the way, remember, after the flood, from those three sons, every man, every woman, and every child on the planet has descended from them. I'd say that's pretty fruitful. Wouldn't you? Okay. So, we'll deal more with Shem, Ham, and Japheth later, but suffice it to say that Noah's sons may have been deeply touched by their father's commitment to God. And I think this is an important issue to consider. That here we find a tremendous encouragement in his sons not only being named, but eventually being on the ark. The encouragement is this. Your children can escape the corruption of this world. Your children can escape the corruption of this world. Your testimony and your example as parents, whether single or not, your testimony and your example are crucial. They are crucial. Noah undoubtedly got them involved in the building of the ark. Well, let's get our kids involved in the Lord's work. The sons of Noah, without a doubt, heard his preaching. So we need to get our children interested in the Word of God. If you have children today in any of the levels of of, uh, classes in in our Sunday school, that's what they're learning. They're getting into the Word of God. I'm always blessed, though, because I know some high school kids come here instead of to our high school ministry, and that's okay. <clears throat> I, I uh, talked to one who had come to uh, a service a couple of weeks ago and, and, and hadn't heard me speak before. And, and what excited me was that she had these questions about what I had taught. And I thought, that's cool. That is really cool. She had questions about the scriptures that we dealt with. And that excites me that kids are interested in the Word of God. I'm an old-fashioned kind of person, and I'd like to see more Bibles in our kids' hands rather than all kinds of things that they do this. I've seen some adults do it, too. So, you know. I wonder where they get it from. Uh, 
We get it from our kids. The kids get it from us. Maybe you know which you know what came first, the chicken or the egg? I'd, I'd really, I'd, I really, we need to be in our Bibles, folks. Heard somebody one time say, "I am. I got, I got the Bible in my phone." Okay. Lord knows your heart. If it's there, praise the Lord. Hey, good. You know what? I have the Bible on my phone too. I got the I got the Bible on my phone and on my iPad and on my computer, but I got more Bibles than I have those things. Because I love to read the Word of God. We need to do that to be an example to our children. Your testimony is that important. And see, all of this is really predating what we're seeing here. The effect that Noah had on his children is predating the law. It is predating the prophets. It is predating the poetry of the scriptures. But we still see the eternal principles of God's word being exemplified. The principles like we see in Deuteronomy 4 verse 9, where God is saying, Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them to the, teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Which means teach them to thy sons and to thy sons' sons. Which means, listen, if you're a parent and a grandparent, your, your job isn't done. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7 has the same principle. And these words, God is saying, which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, liest down and when thou risest up. The same principle predates the law in Moses and his, his children. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. Predates the law, but guess what? It was being done. Noah was certainly energized by the Spirit of God to do this with his children, to, to, to do the things that God was commanding him to do. He was energized by the Spirit of God because he had, he had found grace in the eyes of God. But he wasn't only energized by the Spirit of God. As we read on, he's also enlightened by God. God enlightens him as, as the Lord reviews the condition of the earth with him. Notice verses 11 through 13. Once again, we see this, and this is why we're not spending a lot of time. We've dealt with this so much already up to this point. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. That's a lot of flesh. And God said unto Noah, God speaks to Noah and says to him, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroyed, uh, destroy them with the earth. So let's remember that God would strive with man for 120 years. He says, I'm going to give you 120 years. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we would have to think that at the age of 480, Noah went out and began to preach righteousness. Because it took him 100 years to build the ark. Or at least, you know, we, we, we see when, when all of this is within that 100 years, of course. But all that time is the time that God has given for man to repent and turn from their sins and come back to God. 
So the long-suffering of God waited before the flood while Noah was building the ark. The Spirit of God was striving with men. Most would resist Him. One would receive. In Noah's day, listen, men either grieved God by their sin or they found grace in God's eyes. And I want to apply this to you who are living in days very much like the days of Noah. Either you grieve God by your sin or you are finding grace in God's eyes. And I want you to consider that the things, that, there, that things still grieve the Father's heart today that grieved Him then. Things still grieve God, the Father, now that grieved God then. In verse 2 we read of that sexual lust that characterized the sons of God. Our society is now dominated by sexual immorality of every imaginable kind. And how tragic when it is associated with professing believers in Jesus Christ. How tragic that is. Over the past 25 years, you know, to, to hear or read of the, the scandals, and even in, in the ministry, of people falling in sexual sins. And still, listen, the New Testament is filled with warnings to believers to avoid sexual sin. It has been a sin since the fall of Adam. But it's in the law. And it's in the New Testament to avoid these things. It grieves the Father. Secondly, spiritually mixed marriages have always been grievous to the Lord. We took the position that uh, as we were looking at the first four verses that we were dealing actually with with, uh, the uh, sons of God being the fallen angels and the daughters of men, you know, having these relations that produced the giants. And, 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 you know, then we see how man began to actually renown, you know, hold these people in renown. Something wrong there. They had taken their eyes off of God. But whether it was those kind of mixed marriages or even if it was just believers with, with unbelievers, think about, the, think about it this way. God had told his people to stay pure and to marry within themselves. Then you carry that particular principle into the New Testament. And Paul tells us that, that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So does that principle remain all the way through? Predates the law, goes through the law, comes even through the New Testament. But it grieves God. Thirdly, if the sons of God were fallen angels, then the men, and especially the women of Noah's day, consorted with demons. And folks, people are doing that even in the church today. When people set aside the word of God so that, you know, we don't want to offend anybody, so, you know, we want everybody to come, we want everybody to feel at home, feel like, you know, then, then you begin to read church bulletins and they have one kind of new age thing after another going on in their churches, but nothing that, that, that resembles any kind of trust in God. And new age, age teachings are rampant in the church, unfortunately. It's embracing the form of occultism, New Age techniques. 
And yet we're warned and by Paul in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. I personally have a struggle with something called Christian yoga. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I do. Because I consider Christian yoga an oxymoron. It doesn't mix. Because yoga is primarily an Eastern religious uh, practice. I can't mix it. It's crazy. Fourthly, the corruption that the Lord mentions is connected with sexual immorality, idolatry, and deceitful conduct. Whenever we see the word corruption, it involves all of that. Sexual immorality, idolatry, deceitful conduct. And all all covetousness, by the way, all covetousness, the desire for other things that don't belong to you and you wanting them to have, you know, that's coveting. You covet your neighbor's things and, and whatnot. All covetousness is said to be a form of idolatry. And we are warned that deceiving ourselves about sin will harden our hearts. Folks, it does happen. But the warning was to the church. Because in Hebrews 3.13 it says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you, listen, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And it is sad to me that you can go into some churches today and they say, you know what, don't worry too much about sin. Folks, What we're reading in the book of Genesis should cause us to be concerned and be serious about the issue of sin. Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. I say that's pretty serious. We need to start getting serious about the deceitfulness of sin. And trying to weigh things out. Well, this isn't so bad. This isn't so, you know. You know what? If, if, If it's sin, it's sin. And guess what? God grieves over it in our lives. Then there's violence. Violence dominates the the entertainment media of today. Movies and TV. It's incredible how much violence there is. Then I'm watching this commercial for this new game. Digital game or, you know, whatever. For computers or TV or whatever. And they have these mothers watching it. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, you know. And the whole idea is that that's going to sell it to the kids. Your mother hates it, therefore it's a good game. But what did Paul say? One of the great sins of the end times is disobedience to parents. Parents are given the responsibility of teaching you what's right. And all this violence gets into people's heads. Listen, we're living in the most, one of the most violent societies that has ever been known. And I would have to say that Noah's day, it was, as, it was equal. Because as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. But it's a lot, you know, it was a lot less uh, uh, technical in the sense of, uh, you know, the sophistication of, of, of technology and all which makes it worse in our time, in a sense. So easy to get to. But you know what it leads to? It's led to a, 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 a sense of, of, of a lack of, of remorse. Kids commit murder today. 
They're not sorry. They're only sorry they got caught. You can watch this, this show on TV called uh, Beyond Scared Straight. And these kids are taking, you know, these, these kids that are, on the, on the, you know, getting ready to go to, to prison by the way that they're living their lives. So they take them into prison. And they get these, these uh, inmates talking to them, you know, about, you know, we don't want you here. You, know, you need to stay out of, uh, out of prison. And these kids go in there cocky and thinking, you know, they really, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And, and they get to some sense where, where it looks like, you know, they've been affected a little bit. But then, you, you know, they, they, they go back a few months later and, and, you know, they may have changed a little bit, but their hearts haven't changed. And the reason is because only Jesus Christ can change a heart like that. I do hope and pray. You know, I, I remember seeing a few, almost 20 years ago, I remember seeing the first, you know, scared straight things. Now, there, was, there was a lot of people who changed their lives in those days because, you know, it was pretty bad. But nowadays, yeah, it's, it's not the same. My prayer is, you know, some of these inmates actually do believe in Jesus Christ. And I think they, they don't show it because it's a secular program. And they don't show, you know, that they, they may speak about Christ. And they, they won't show you that part. I hope that it's happening so that some of these kids will get right with the Lord. But that's the change they need. Because you can back off and just, you know, and not go into any great kind of sin. But you know what? Your heart doesn't change. You just might change your tactics, that's all. But if you hate, you still hate. If you drink, you still drink. If you do drugs, you still do drugs. And that's the outcome of a lot of these people coming out of that, that program. So it's unfortunate. But that's violence. But Jesus said it best. Because it was a prophetic word from Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 12, when he says, And because iniquity shall abound, iniquity, folks, is lawlessness. Iniquity is lawlessness. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. There's no love in people anymore. They just want to be as hard as they can, you know. They have adopted the evolutionary teaching that they get in public schools that says it is the survival of the fittest. And therefore, if you're protecting your your little circle of of life, somebody gets gets in the way, you're out of here. That's the wondrous blessing of evolution, isn't it? Survival of the fittest. That's why I believe what God says about creation. We were not created as animals, folks. We were created in the image of God. Man has turned that around. So the sins that grieve God then still grieve God today. But my question to you this morning is, have you found grace? Have you found grace? Because this is going to be the critical question of your life when Jesus comes. And he's coming soon. Have you found grace? Now let me expand the question. Are you enabled by grace to walk with God in this wicked and perverse generation? Are you enabled by grace to walk with God in this wicked and perverse generation? To walk clear of it? as Noah had to do, and his family, as they had to do. They had to walk clear of it, but they had to preach righteousness. 
Remember this. Grace affects your character and your conduct. Grace affects your character and your conduct. So when you truly come to the Lord Jesus, your life changes. You won't be the same. That's why Paul tells us, examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Because grace changes our character and our and affects our, our character and our conduct. Noah found grace and he walked with God. Noah found grace and he walked with God. Listen, when you find grace, you're going to walk with God. Now, not only did the Lord review the condition of the earth with Noah, but he also revealed his wrath to him in verse 13. Let's look at verse 13. God said unto Noah, Oh, gosh. Spilled a glass of water here. Genesis 6.13 And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You know how we can end that verse? Period. The end. Why? Because what the Lord is saying is, He had reached the limit of His patience. He had reached the limit of His patience, but He revealed... The fact to Noah so that a way of escape might be provided for those who would take it. For even in his wrath, God remembers his mercy. Even in his wrath, God remembers mercy. A plan of salvation was extended to all. That plan, as in all ages, foreshadowed the finished work of Jesus Christ. Please remember that. This is a foreshadowing of the finished work of Christ. Notice what what, uh, uh, he goes on to say in verse 14. He tells them to make an ark. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, which means that all around the top there would be an 18 inch, about an 18 inch, because that would be a cubit, about an 18 inch opening all the way around the top of this ark. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Noah was to build an ark and offer a way of escape from the coming wrath to that condemned and doomed generation. Now, what's an ark? Let me tell you what an ark is not. An ark is not a boat. We've seen all of the artists' conceptions of Noah's Ark, right? Especially the ones for our kids. Uh, it's, it's, it looks like a big boat, and there's holes around so that the giraffe's head sticking out this way, and a hippopotamus sticking out this way, and, you know, a little dog is standing, you know, a big dog, you know. And, they have, and it's all crowded, and everybody's like, this is terrible, you know. But, but it wasn't that way. Notice the dimensions. 300 cubits long. 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. The ark was not a boat. Because you see, man can control a boat. 
this object was not to be controlled by man. It would be controlled by God. The ark was a box. And more specifically, it was a coffin. You see, Noah was given full instructions and well, we'll spend more time later on the specifics of the building of the ark. The ark was to be in the shape of a coffin. In fact, gopher wood, which is the wood that he was to use, wood of cypress trees, is what is normally gopher wood, was the same wood from which ancient peoples made their coffins. It's a box. What is the Ark of the Covenant? What was Indiana Jones looking for? Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was a box. It was a beautiful box because it was, you know, uh, uh, coated and trimmed with gold and all. But it was a box. And God was in control of that box. Not man. When man tried to control that box by itself, guess what it did? It killed man. And I'm not talking about the movie Indiana Jones and all of that. Kill them too, but it was a totally different thing. So you see, gopher wood is an indestructible wood. And it would be more indestructible with the pitch that was to be applied on the outside and inside of that boat. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it was an indestructible wood. And we're going to talk about, from, from scientific discoveries and all, of, of, of what has been found or what many have, have not been able to get to in, in, a, in, a, in a greater sense. But, but there on Mount Ararat, in, in the mountains around Turkey and Armenia, what's up there? There's something there. Some people have actually taken some pieces of this wood. A lot of it is, of course, petrified now, but... It's indestructible. You can still see it. Interesting. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get into, the, into those things. But when completed, the ark was to be covered inside and out with something called pitch. It's made of oil. It was like an out, uh, a covering, a mud-like kind of covering, inside and out. But what's interesting is that the Hebrew word used for pitch is the same word used in the Old Testament for atonement. For atonement. The ark was to have a window and a door. Noah, Noah would have control of the window. How do you control a window? You know, there was no, there was no glass in it. It was just an opening. How do you control the window? That's all that Noah could do. And what did he see? A lot of water. Noah would have control of the window, but God would take care and take charge of the door. God took the door. All of this can be illustrated to, uh, to be used to be illustrated to, uh, to illustrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, I should say. All of this can be used to illustrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see Noah 
in obedience, toiling away. The great antediluvian carpenter, you know, the antediluvian just means before the flood. But here's the great antediluvian carpenter producing a a judgment-proof way of salvation for a lost world. It all points to the carpenter from Nazareth who who provided a judgment-proof righteousness and perfect salvation for men. And it was atonement that was assured. Atonement was assured. Because he comes between them and the outpoured wrath of God. He comes between them and the outpoured wrath of God. Think of it this way. Without Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being the propitiation for our sins, Propitiation meaning the atoning sacrifice. There would be no protection from the wrath of God. But those who believe that Jesus died for them and rose again from the dead, the atonement is applied to their lives. Therefore, he comes between them and the outpoured wrath of God. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, And He, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 10 of uh, 1 John, Herein is love, John says. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The atoning sacrifice. And so everything that we see in the ark, and as we will see as we continue to study it, everything about the ark points to Jesus Christ. It is a type of Christ. Just as Paul, when he speaks of the, the, the uh, uh, armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, when he speaks of every part of the armor of God, every part of the armor of God speaks of some characteristic of the atoning work of Christ in our lives of the salvation of Christ, of the deliverance of Christ, of the protection of Christ for His people. And we see that in this ark. And we'll see it more as we get into it. Lastly, the plan of salvation in Noah's day rested on the faithful Word of God. Not only foreshadowing the the, uh, finished work of Christ, but now the faithful Word of God. God gives His Word here. Notice in verses 17 through 22. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. Folks, there has been a universal flood. We'll talk about that as we get into chapter 7. Verse 18, But with thee will I establish my covenant. Here is God's promise. Here is God's uh, statement and His word. I will establish my covenant with you. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah. Notice the obedience of Noah. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. It tells us twice in that verse, Noah was obedient to God. 
And the Lord, the Lord pledged himself to save all those who believed his word. The plan of salvation was the same for the ancient world as it is today. What is that plan? There must be a response to God's word and a deliberate turning to Christ. There must be a response to God's word and a deliberate turning to Christ. Folks, Paul says it in Romans chapter 10. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He also says in that very same chapter. That if we say with our mouth the Lord, if, if, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he has risen from the dead, so shall you be saved. We are saved because we believe and we confess that. We respond to God's word and we turn to Christ. Jesus is our ark because salvation is available only in and through him. And God controls that, not us. He didn't put us in a boat. He put us in an ark. I want to leave you with this one last scripture in John chapter 10. The gospel of John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. Because I found it fascinating, and I'm not saying that this is really linked to, to Noah's ark. But, but nonetheless, it just gives us something to think about. Jesus said unto them again, in verse 7 of John chapter 10, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus says, I'm the door. Isn't that an interesting thing? He's the door. And all who come in shall be saved. God's in control of the door of the ark. Man doesn't have any control of that door. When the door was open... It was open to all who would come and believe what God said he would do. But there was a day, as we shall see in our study of the, of, of the building of the ark, and, and when God, there was a day when God closes the door. We're coming to that time of judgment. There is coming a day when the door is going to be closed. And we may hear the words from the book of Jeremiah. The summer is ended when the waters began to rise from below the earth and from the rain. What were the thoughts and the ideas of those who had laughed at Noah? They weren't laughing anymore. People laugh at us because we believe in Jesus Christ. They laugh at us because we believe the word of God to be real and true. 
They laugh at us because we believe that the world was created in six 24-hour days. Well, I believe that because God said so. And God's good for His Word. I believe that God can change a heart and a life instantaneously. So that one day when we were blind to the things of God, all of a sudden our eyes are open, we can understand then what God says in His Word. I believe these things. But people laugh at us because of it. But there'll be a day when they stop laughing. I don't want you to be one of those people. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you need to find grace in the eyes of the Lord because you can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't do anything good in this life in and of yourself to please God because we're all sinners. And you can't work for it. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. That's His grace. Unmerited favor. Don't leave here without that grace. Find the grace. Find that grace when you come to the throne of His grace. You come to Jesus Christ. Folks, you can come at any moment. The fact of the matter is, He can come and He's going to come as He says. But when we pass from this life, for that particular person, He's come. Will you be ready? It can happen today. This is reality. But so is the love of Christ. So is the work of the cross. Let's pray.